0: Our Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. We know because you have said that your word is living and active, sharper than any word, any sword, penetrating to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. We know that your word is able to judge the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. So I pray that you'd help me speak your word from your word faithfully today. And please, may you do through your word what you have promised that you will. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and for his glory. Amen. Now, friends, Australians are really generally known for being uh, people who drink lots. (laughs) And a pub crawl is a uniquely Australian experience uh, where you go from pub to pub. Although we were recently in our holiday in Turkey and there was a pub crawl in Turkey, which I had not associated with Turks before. Anyway, when we were in the United Kingdom, we decided we'd go on a crawl that wasn't a pub crawl but was something different. We decided we'd go on a university crawl. (laughs) We had various universities we wanted to see because our friends had studied there and we thought we'd go and visit them all. Uh, Now, here is a, a question I want to pose to you. There is one famous Christian writer who was an academic both at the University of Oxford and the University of Cambridge and who celebrated his 75th, actually he's dead now, but celebrated his 75th anniversary of his conversion not long ago. Does anyone know who that person might be? C.S. Lewis. Lewis, of course, well done. Well now, C.S. Lewis wrote two books about his conversion. One was called Surprised by Joy, and the other was called The Pilgrim's Regress. And in each of those books, Lewis recounts the search for what he called joy. Joy. He told the story that of how the search for joy is, ultimately le- is what ultimately led him to God. And at the end of Surprised by Joy, he calls the search for joy a signpost along the road that leads to God. The longing, you see, for joy, he felt deep in his psyche, he said, was ultimately fulfilled in God. Now, as I reflect on the conversion of C.S. Lewis, it is clear to me that his longing is a very common one. You see, we all long for happiness, don't we? Uh, Our advertisements proclaim it, our movies witness to it, our media constantly harps upon it, uh, our language reflects it, self-help books try to lead us to it. Uh, We want joy. We want that state of blessedness, where things are right and things are good. We long for this mysterious state of blessedness, where everything will be set right, everything will be sorted out, everything will be good, and where we will be fulfilled, and where our whole existence will be saturated with contentment. Friends, this search for happiness, for blessedness, is a common search amongst all humans, wherever they are in this world. And it is one that is regularly addressed by the Psalms. In fact, do you know what the very first word in the book of Psalms is? It is blessed. The Psalmist cries, how blessed are those? And like C.S. Lewis, the book of Psalms clearly connects with our longing for this state, co- connects that state, that longing for our state of blessedness with our longing for God. All those who know God experience the same desire as the psalmist feels. They know with Lewis and the psalmist that happiness and blessedness is tied up with God. And they long for God. You cry out for God. Their deepest yearning is for being in the company of God. Their heartfelt lust is for the presence of God. What I want to do today is to focus on this theme in one psalm. Psalm 27. So it'd be good to have your Bibles open, Psalm 27. Now friends, before we get underway, I want to tell you that this sort of Bible talk today is not the usual thing I do, it's slightly different. Usually I just work systematically through a passage. But today's talk is much more personal and works slightly differently. And I hope uh, that you'll come with me as I reflect upon my own personal life and perhaps it might ring some bells with you as well. And my hope is that my personal reflections will find some resonance with you. As I looked at this psalm, I hope that my looking at it finds some resonance with you as well. Let me tell you a bit about my Christian life. My Christian life came about spectacularly. Uh, I had grown up in a Christian family. However, I had rejected the faith of my parents when I was in my early teens. Uh, But then at 18, I was dramatically converted. I became Christian. And the intimacy that I experienced with God was intense and close. I knew God. I knew that God knew me and loved me in Christ. But I want to tell you that as I've gone on in my Christian life, that intimacy with God has lessened. Not increased, but lessened. Now, oh, don't get me wrong. The desire for intimacy with God has not diminished. The longing for God has not lessened. But the experience of intimacy has. And so this psalm represents a sort of personal reflection for me on those things that happen in my life and on what I think the writer is trying to say. So I offer it to you today because it allows me to explore with you what I think is probably a common experience amongst Christian people. Uh, So let's get underway by looking at the psalm. First thing I want you to notice is that there are two or three thoughts that repeat themselves within this psalm. Look at verse 3. The word to notice is the word confident or sure. He says, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. So that's the beginning of the psalm. Now look at the end of the psalm. Look at verse 13. The note of confidence is still there. Our psalmist says this, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Uh, and Another translation, the NIV, says it this way. I remain confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You see, David, the writer of this psalm, is brimming with confidence at its beginning and at its end. He starts with confidence, he ends with confidence. That's the overwhelming feeling he has as he faces life. Confidence. But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that these two expressions of confidence Bracket some other words. In verse 4, look at the word that David uses. It's the word for desire. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I, I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You see, that's what he wants, that's what he's asking, that's what he's desiring. You see, David's intense desire is for God. He seeks God. He longs for God's presence. The one thing that he asks, the one thing that he wants above everything else is to be in God's presence, to gaze upon God's beauty. But now look at verse 8. David talks of seeking. You have said, seek my face. Well, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. You see, David knows that God wants his people to seek after him. And he's determined that that's what he'll be doing as he shapes his existence. His face he will seek. Let me repeat this. The, star, the psalm starts and ends with confidence. Within those statements of confidence, there are statements about God, David seeking God. But I want you to notice something else about the psalm. I want you to notice its structure. You see, Psalm 27 falls into two neat halves. It contains two common literary types. Verses 1 to 6 are a song of praise. They praise God for who he is and what he's done. They praise him confidently for what he will do in the future. He is light and salvation, verse 1. He is the stronghold of David's life, his reason not to fear, verse 1. He will, in the future, hide David in his shelter in the day of trouble, verse 6. He will lift David's head above those, above those of his enemies, verse 6. He will cause, be the cause of singing and making melody, verse 6. Can you hear that song of praise? God has been this, God will be this. But now look at verses 7 to 14, the second half of the psalm. It's not a song of praise. It's a lament. You see, the tone is one of desertion, of protest against God, for things are no longer good as they were in the first half. God is no longer apparently near and present. David worries that God has actually hidden his face from him, that he's he's rejected him or perhaps even forsaken him. And so he cries out to God, He seeks answers, verse 7. He asks God, don't hide your face from me, verse 9. Don't give me up to the will of my adversaries, verse 12. Can you hear the two halves of the psalm? Song of praise, also lament. Notice something. Notice that between the song of praise and the lament, there is one thing in common. Both are united by a common desire for God's presence. In verse 4, the psalm has one thing he asks about God in the success of life. You see, in the success of life, what does he want? He desperately wants the presence of God and to soak it up. In verses 8 and 9, the one thing that he asks of God in God's absence is exactly the same. God's presence. His greatest longing, whether he's in trouble or in good, is for God. Because, you see, he knows that in God there's fullness of life. In God there's blessedness. In his presence is everything that a human being needs and wants. And in his presence he can do the things outlined in verse 6. He can exalt over his enemies. He can sacrifice with shouts of joy in the presence of God. He can sing and make music to him. Friends, let's spend some time reflecting on what, just what we've found in this psalm. You see, this psalm unlocks some deep truths. I want you to see and understand that underneath this psalm there is a fundamental premise. Do you know what it is? The fundamental premise is the first commandment. There is one God and all that is worthwhile having in life is found in him. David knows this and believes this. There is but one God And everything that is worthwhile having in life is found in him and him alone. Second, David believes and knows that this God is a creator and redeemer. That is both implied and stated throughout the psalm. In verse 1, David rejoices that God is his light and salvation. He's the stronghold of his life. Verse 2, he records that God sustains him and redeems him from his enemies. This is the second truth. God is creator, made him. And Redeemer rescues him. Third, David knows that in this God is found fullness of life. David's clear about this at every level. His greatest longing, his highest desire, the goal of his search is the presence of God. For in his presence is fulfilment of everything he wants. Can you see what is being said here? The fundamental longing that David feels is shaped by the fact that he's the creature of God the creation of God he is a creation of his creator he is a creature he like us was made for God God has fashioned David and fashioned me and fashioned you for God and he's placed within us a deep longing for him now you may not believe that in the world that you see but it is there The rest of the Bible agrees. The first three pages of the Bible and the last three pages, two pages of the Bible tell us that we were made to be related to God and we will find fulfilment there. They make it clear that we find ultimate peace and joy and happiness when we're in untainted relationship with God. This is what God made us for. He made us for him. And fullness of life is found in him. So there's the theological and the uh, theoretical framework for this sum. But one God, creator and redeemer, we find fullness of life in him. We find fullness in his presence. But, and God has sown into our beings an ingrained longing for him and his presence. That's how God made me and that is how God made you. He made us for him. Fullness is found in God. But now, friends, I want to talk to you about reality, experienced reality. Because we started with C.S. Lewis and the beginning of his Christian life, I thought it's just right that we should turn to him at another time in his life. Let me read to you some of the jottings that he made in a notebook after his wife died. Uh, She was the love of Lewis's life. On her death, he grieved for her deeply. And early in his grief, he wrote these words. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you attempted to uh, feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? The door slammed in your face. A sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. Can you hear what he's saying? As though God has shut you out. And after that, silence. And you may as well turn away. The, the longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence becomes. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house, and you wonder, was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean, says Lewis? Why is God such a present commander in our times of prosperity and so very absent a help in our times of trouble? Can you hear the grief of this man? Can you hear his doubts? Can you hear he's still yearning after God that he's loved and known? Even in his most desperate moments, he says, I know where reality is to be found and I seek that. Friends, I wonder if you've ever been where C.S. Lewis has been. If you have not, I can almost guarantee you will (laughs) at some time in life. You see, this is the world of reality and it's the world... That the Bible presents you see do you know what the very first recorded prayer in the Bible is it comes in chapter 4 of Genesis first recorded prayer in the Bible it's lament it's the lament of Cain in Genesis 4 when God threatens him with distance do you know what Cain says he says my punishment is greater than I can bear Behold, you have driven me to today away from the ground and from the, your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whatever whoever finds me will kill me. Can you hear what he's saying? He's saying, "God, if you do this to me, where can I go?" But Lament's not just the first prayer after Eden. It saturates the Old Testament. You see, approximately one-third of the psalms in the 150 psalms of the Bible are lament. The Lord Jesus himself uses a lament in his dying breath. Do you remember? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Apostle Paul laments in 2 Corinthians 12. He records how he pleaded with God to remove a thorn in the flesh from him, a messenger of Satan who was harassing him. And God said, sort of. You may have to live with this. The Christian martyrs in Revelation 6 lament under the altar. The souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and the witness they're born cry out to God with a loud voice and hear what they say. They say, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Friends, people throughout Old and New Testament ask the sorts of questions that Lewis asks. And these questions are in this psalm as well. You can see it in the way the psalmist begins and the way he ends. Look at verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Can you hear it? Strong, triumphant, exalting. Now flip down to verse 14. David says wait for the Lord why wait because he seems absent wait for the Lord be strong let your heart take courage wait for the Lord the the triumph and the exaltation are gone aren't they doubt has entered plea has entered the reality of God's presence has been replaced by a wish for God to be present you can see the very same thing at the book, end of the book of Lamentations. You see it in other lament psalms. Triumph is replaced by an urging us to be patient and strong while we wait for God to be he whom we know him to be. In the words of Lewis, the silence is emphatic. There are no lights in the window of God's presence as it were. And all you can do is doubt that he's there or that he's good. Or you can wait for him to be what you know him to be. Friends, this psalm records for us what so many of us know in the daily reality of longing for God. I wonder if this is you. You've known God closely, intimately at some point in your life, but he seems absent. You long for him. You long to be in his presence and gaze upon his beauty as you did in those early days. But so often we find ourselves caught between these two states of our existence. God is my God, he alone is God, he's my light, my salvation, whom shall I fear and wait for God. He is not what we know him to be and want him to be. It's not what we experienced. That what we experienced of him at the beginning is not what we're experiencing of him now. And in between those two statements is reality. A reality filled with our desire, our anticipation of joyously being back in the presence of God, our anguish and our pleas and our questioning of him and our fear of him abandoning us. And so, friends, this is life. But my question is this: What do you do while you wait? That makes sense? What do you do while you wait? What would God have us do while we wait for him to be what we have known him to be and know that he will be eventually? But we're not experiencing it in the present. What what do we do? Well, I'd like to suggest three things, okay, three things that you could do. First, the book of Lamentations, C.S. Lewis and this psalm and all the laments of scripture would urge us not to fudge that is not to pretend like C.S. Lewis and the psalmist we must talk to God about it do you notice that who is the psalmist talking to he's saying to God you are not what I want you to be please be it don't fudge in God's seeming absence approach him with boldness and plead with him and be honest with him and express your anguish to him And tell him that we seek him and long to be back in close relationship with him. You see, we can talk to God. What we experience is not to be explained away. You see, lots of Christians fudge on this. They say, oh no, it's still good. But deep inside, they're feeling it doesn't feel very good. Second thing, we should bring doubt and our feelings out into the open. Friends, we live in a Christian world that has forgotten to lament except in the privacy of our own hearts. You try and go to your next Bible study group and tell people how really tough you're feeling. There'll be lots of quick answers, probably. The Bible doesn't always give the quick answers. I I, I think the reason that we no longer lament are multiple, but awful. You see, I'm with those people who argue that there is no text in the New Testament that would prevent a Christian from lamenting. No text in the New Testament that would tell us we cannot lament like the psalmist does. No text that would express the idea that faith in Christ excludes lamentation from a person's relationship with God. My friends, many Christians have right, are rightly lamenting the loss of lament among Christians. Okay, I I lamented. We don't sing lament anymore. You think of any song you have sung in the last 20 years that laments. They don't happen. Because Christians don't sing them any longer. They sing triumphalist songs. It is good, it is great. Everything is triumphal. And some of us can't sing them because they strike a deep chord in our lives. Now, friends, by all means, let's sing songs rejoicing and triumphant. Let's rejoice in the Lord always, because that's what the apostle tells us to do, and we we ought to be doing it. Let's urge each other on when we find, to find that God is our light and our salvation. But, friends, do you know what the the New Testament always says? It also says, it says, weep with those who weep. Weep with those who weep. Let's cry alongside, to God, alongside and on behalf of those who groan and sigh because life is not yet what God has promised it to be. Friends, do you cry alongside the Christians who are persecuted all around the world today? Can you feel what they are feeling as they are in prison, as they are tortured, as they are brutalised And do you feel it with them and say to God, how long, O Lord? Let us allow people to bring before God their doubt and their grief. And let us allow ourselves to voice before God, just as David did, Paul did, and the saints under the altar did. And while I'm saying this, I wonder if I could just say one more thing. You see, I wonder if I could plead for a more regular reading of the Psalms together in church. Because my feeling is that there is no other place where we allow people to express lament. And reading the psalms is a good place to do it. Churches, Anglican churches in particular used to read a psalm every day, every Sunday, if not every day. And what does that do? It allows us to identify with the one third of the psalms that are lament. Lament is not blasphemy. It is an appropriate and honest response to god in a world that is still beset by sin and groaning is a godly response saying to god how long before things will be the way they used to be and they ought to be so first first let's not fudge about the realities of life in god's world second let's bring our doubts and our feelings out into the open with god and sometimes even with each other and third let's do what Lewis and the psalmist does. Let's nurture our desire for God even when we are finding life tough. You see, although we feel God to be distant, we know that fullness of life is found in him. He alone is God. He alone is worthy of worship and alone in his presence is joy and he loves us and we can be confident in his love. And here's my fourth point. So fourth point, and perhaps in many ways the most important one. Let's be God's Christian people and acknowledge that we have a guarantee that David did not have. We have a a guarantee that David did not have. David, you see, knew himself to be formed by God and known by God. But we know that the Lord Jesus Christ has died for us and formed an unbreakable bond between himself and us. We are God's people in Christ, bought with the blood of his own son, ransomed to be redeemed, to to be his children for eternity, destined to be gathered around God's throne in his everlasting presence. We are members, as the writer of Hebrews says, of Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem citizens of the city of the living God. Our names are written in heaven, never to be removed. We are those who belong to Jesus Christ. For this reason, and for this reason alone, I think we can join in with David. Even though we can identify with his anguish, and we can sometimes feel God's apparent absence. We can identify with his confidence as well. And we can say, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You see, we know in Christ that he will be what he's promised he will be. We know. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are our light and salvation, and therefore, whom shall we fear? We know because of the Lord Jesus that you are the stronghold of our lives. And therefore, there is none of whom we should be afraid. Father, as we experience in life sometimes your apparent absence, we pray that we might, knowing the Lord Jesus, be strong and wait and, and strengthen our hearts. Help us, Father, we pray that as we see our brothers and sisters struggling with this as well, that we might not only rejoice with those who rejoice, but weep with those who weep. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.